0: Welcome back. This is Exhibit AI, a podcast exploring contemporary legal issues for tomorrow's technology, presented by the Center for Legal and Court Technology at William & Mary Law School. I'm your host, Lindsay Whitlow, CLCT's Busball Fellow. As is our new custom, before we begin, I want to ask our listeners to please excuse any sound quality issues we may have as we're practicing social distancing and recording this episode via Zoom. Today, I'm joined by CLCT Research Fellow, Alex Pratt, and her fellow recent William & Mary graduate, Andrew Parslow. Thank you both for being here today and volunteering
1: your time. Hey, this is a welcome break from uh, studying for the bar. Just uh, you know, don't tell my bar rep, please.
2: <laughs> yeah, happy to be here.
0: In case it wasn't clear, Andrew, Alex, and our behind-the-scenes sound technician, Ott Lindstrom, are all volunteering their summertime to help us with this podcast, despite or maybe because of the intensity of bar prep. So I do just want to say a huge thank you before we start for all of your help. As some of you may remember, Alex is really passionate about constitutional law. So even though she's volunteering to help, it isn't a huge surprise that she'd be willing to talk with us today, um, especially since we're focusing on the Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment. Um, Andrew, however, we really lucked out to have by chance. He wrote a paper on the Takings Clause in Smart Cities for William Mary's class, which um, explores the legal issues arising from IoT, artificial intelligence, and related technologies, which um, is really the first of its kind in the U.S., so uh, it's really exciting, because when we heard about this paper, we couldn't really pass up the opportunity to dig into the topic, too. So Andrew's research is the basis for a lot of our discussion today. So we've talked about why cities are important, what smart cities are, which we'll recap shortly, but we haven't really talked about how cities are developed. Andrew, maybe you can tell us a little bit
2: about that process. Sure, so the process used to plan and develop cities is called urban planning. It's really an interdisciplinary area and can include anything from social science, architecture, human geography, politics, engineering, and design sciences. It goes back all the way to the Greek architect, Hippodamus of Miletus in the 400s BC. Historians refer to him as the father of urban planning.
0: So what did Hippodamus do to get that title?
2: Well, he's the creator of the Hippodamian plan, which is still used today by urban planners for constructing city layouts. The plan uses rectangular blocks, which represent lands of equal area, which are then crossed by parallel lines representing streets in a grid-like pattern. The location of important city structures and landmarks were placed in the center of the grid, while homes are placed on the periphery.
0: Okay, well, that seems pretty logical. What were the Greeks doing before that?
2: Before the invention of the Hippodamian plan, most city grids were irregular and buildings were built around an important landmark, like the Acropolis in Athens. This made it difficult to transport goods or supply water to houses. After Hippodamus, many cities were designed according to his principles. A square city, a street plan based on squares or rectangles, a colonnaded main street, and a large agora in the center. An agora being kind of like an open space for markets or for people to assemble.
1: Of course, this was the Greek system, which was used quite extensively in Roman compounds, because you know, the Romans just basically copied everything from the Greeks, then put their own names on it. But it wasn't used necessarily in the rest of Europe. Uh, many European cities grew organically bit by bit, if you've ever been to, you know, parts of the original city of London, it's just a maze of streets. Areas that were rural or considered countryside during the industrial revolution, there was no time to plan as people moved to the cities. So while not every city adopted Hippodamus's plan, numerous major cities have, such as New York or Chicago, and it encouraged subsequent movements which aimed to use urban planning to produce better and smarter cities. So how much has changed
0: since Hippodamus, at least for urban planning in the U.S.?
2: Well, the first major iteration of this trend in the United States was the City Beautiful movement in the early 1900s. Their goal was to use urban planning to create better cities that were safer, easier to traverse, and were more visually appealing.
1: Just to jump in here for a moment, because it's a topic I'm actually really interested in. I think we should give some examples of the City Beautiful movement before we go further so people can really understand what we're talking about. Uh, The movement was really focused on making cities both more beautiful and more monumental in grandeur. Uh, The examples that we have left today give you a really good idea of its focus on this monumentalism. The National Mall in DC was built as part of the movement. So was Mindman Avenue in Richmond, Virginia. But the best example of the movement was what was called the White City, and it was built for the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. If you're a history buff, there is a great book on the exposition called The Devil in the White City. I I just have to plug it. It is seriously my favorite book.
0: Uh, Isn't that book also about a serial killer? Maybe. (laughs) True crime weirdo. Yes,
1: I am. (laughs) Okay, the exposition wasn't just about the grandeur of the white city. There were also exhibits based around the progressive movement of the day, from women's rights to food science.
2: Which really shows how intertwined the City Beautiful movement was with social issues. And that was because it was the first time in the U.S. that urban populations began to outnumber rural ones.
0: And I bet cities weren't prepared for the sudden influx.
1: Not at all. Most people who lived in cities thought that they were dirty and unsafe, and as more and more people came through Ellis Island and Angel Island, there was a greater demand on housing and a need for public spaces. City design also caused problems for sanitation and pollution, problems which span the class divide. So the City Beautiful Movement was a welcome project for both the wealthy and for the poor.
0: So is this the type of planning we subscribe to today?
2: Not so much. The movement's success was limited because it failed to adequately address socioeconomic problems. But it did recognize zoning and physical infrastructure's potential to further the public good. And it established a substantial legal framework, which has been vital for the development of smart cities. An example of this would be the case of Euclid v. Amber Realty Co., which established the legality of zoning.
0: Okay, so let's bring this back to smart cities. I know we've talked many times about what a smart city is in previous episodes, but to help remind our listeners, or maybe if this is your first time tuning in, Alex, would you briefly review the definition we're using for smart cities?
1: Sure. And just for our new listeners, this definition that we're using, it is our own definition because there is no one definition of smart cities. As Catherine said in our first episode on this topic, smart cities involve an integration of Information technology systems with other critical systems in a city like education, healthcare, public safety, uh, real estate, transportation, uh, utilities. Now, data is going to be collected by sensors, of which there may be thousands in just a small area. And the integration of sensor technology with critical city infrastructure allows for continual collection and sharing of data across these city systems, uh, both public systems and private systems. Essentially, cities are using these sensors to gather the data needed to make their short-term and long-term decisions. And one thing we keep emphasizing is that smart cities today, they're not like uh, the Jetsons cartoon, you know, big high-tech sci-fi cities in the sky. What we call smartness, it's being retrofitted onto existing infrastructures. In the U.S., these cities aren't being built from the ground up, but they are in other places around the world. And what's really important with regard to these devices is that though they generally operate in the cybersphere, they have an impact on the physical world. And that's why we have a potential conflict with the Takings Clause. What a perfect segue. Why, thank
0: you. (laughs) Why don't we take a few minutes to talk about the Takings Clause? What do we mean when we use the phrase and where does it come from?
2: Well, the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution has several different clauses, most of which are about criminal law and procedure. The most relevant to us today is, as you said, the takings clause. It basically reads, the government shall not take private property for public use without just compensation. The process of the government taking private property for public use is called eminent domain. While the restriction on eminent domain is codified in the Fifth Amendment, the actual power itself does not come from the amendment and is instead derived from the inherent powers of the sovereign. Now, I want to disclaim that Even though this clause generally seems fairly straightforward, there are whole treatises walking through every little nuance within this area of law. We can't do that here. We will do our best to give it a general flavor of it.
1: Yeah, a general flavor is kind of our thing.
2: (laughs) Definitely,
0: because I can already tell that we're going to need to unpack this quite a bit. And it's only like 10 words long. So for instance, what does the government have to do for it to amount to a taking? What is public use? What is considered just compensation? And most importantly for us, what does it look like in the context of smart cities?
2: All of these are pretty thorny questions. and It may take us some time to get to the last one, but we will, I promise. As for what amounts to a taking, it can come in two different forms. The taking could be physical, which means the government literally takes the private property from its owner. An example of this would be if the government wants an individual's property because it wants to make a new road or it wants to cross someone's property with a utility line, or thinks that it can take the property put to a more effective use. A taking can also be constructive, which is called a regulatory taking. This means the government restricts the owner's rights to do what he wants with the property so much that the government action becomes a functional equivalent of a physical seizure. You can see this in zoning law, or sometimes in environmental acts that are passed, I actually just recently had a paper published on the topic of when an environmental regulation constitutes a regulatory take in the William & Mary Environmental Law and Policy Review, Volume 44. If anyone's interested in learning more on this topic, the article is titled, A Defense of the Regulatory Takings Doctrine, A Historical Analysis of This Conflict Between Property Rights and Public Good and a Prediction for Its Future.
1: One of the quintessential cases dealing with regulatory takings is the case of Pennsylvania Coal Company versus Mahon. this is the case that actually established that there was a cause of action for regulatory takings. Uh, The facts are like this. Pennsylvania Coal Company sold Mahon the surface rights to a piece of land, but the coal company kept the mining rights to the land. So we're talking about above and below grounds as separate pieces of property. Now, about 40 years later, the Pennsylvania state government passed what was known as the Kohler Act, and the Kohler Act prohibited the mining of coal in such a way as to cause the land to sink or cave in and then damage any structure used as a human habitation. Now, the coal company notified Mahon that it planned to mine for coal under Mahon's house, and Mahon sued to prevent the coal company from mining under his land pursuant to the Kohler Act. Now, when it finally got to the Supreme Court, the court said that the Kohler Act constituted eminent domain, which required compensation because it effectively prohibited mining under any homes, making mining there so prohibitively expensive that it, in effect, extinguished the holder's mineral rights. So Pennsylvania Coal Company technically owned the coal under Mahon's house, but without the ability to mine it, the coal was worthless. And by making the coal company's property worthless, the state had effectively taken it. So in this way, the court ruled that the extent of diminution in value of the property can make a regulatory act constitute a taking. But of course, takings aren't just limited to real property. The concept extends to all kinds of tangible and intangible property. Uh, This can include easements, personal property, contract rights, uh, trade secrets, uh, We will get into that a little bit later.
0: This whole concept seems really strange to me. I mean, the one thing I remember from my property class is that U.S. property laws basically give the owners carte blanche to do whatever they wish or don't wish to do with their property. So what am I missing here?
2: Yeah, you're right. This is sort of the antithesis of how we typically treat private property in the United States. In fact, the clause just prior to the Takings Clause in the Fifth Amendment makes it clear that no one should be deprived of life liberty, or property without due process of law. The justification for the Takings Clause is most often said to be that by allowing the states to force the sale of a landowner's private property, it's possible to eliminate potential holdout issues and, theoretically, make the most efficient use of the land in question. A holdout could be someone refusing to sell their property when all the other properties around it have already been sold to the government, but they're holding out to try to get a ridiculously high price for their property.
0: Okay, so, I mean, I guess it makes sense if we think of using land in the best way for the greater community. And this sort of generally explains what a taking is. But then the clause goes on to say that land can only be taken by the government, and I think we've discovered also in some cases common carriers, for public use. So what does that look like?
2: Originally, public use was exactly what it sounded like. Land would be taken for use by the public. Basically, the property acquired by eminent domain must actually be used by the public, or the public must have the opportunity to use the property taken. In this case, the use must be in common for all people in the community, not just a small group or a particular individual. In circumstances where there are no specific laws detailing the government's intended use as a public one, the courts tend to rule in favor of the rights of the property owners.
1: But that's if judges are going by the narrow definition of public use. There is also the little fact that the word use can be interpreted in two ways in this context. It could mean employment or it could mean advantage. So if we read the phrase as public employment, which may mean using eminent domain only for projects where the public may use the land acquired, it would mean like a for a public park. But if we read use to mean public advantage, then that would mean using eminent domain for any project serving the public good or the public welfare. So like taking beachfront property to stop erosion. Honestly, this is why people hate lawyers. (laughs) How could the interpretation of
0: such a simple word like use result in such varied outcomes? I, anyway, moving swiftly along. Andrew, you said the use by the public or it sounds like Alex's public employment like a park is how the term public use was originally interpreted. So what about now? I'm guessing it has to do more with the public advantage or the the welfare of the public.
2: One case turned all jurisprudence on this area on its head, the case of Kelo v. City of New London. Here, the local government in New London, Connecticut, used its eminent domain authority to seize private property to sell to private developers. Affected property owners sued New London in state court, arguing that the city violated the Fifth Amendment's takings clause because it took private property to sell to private developers and that that wasn't a public use. The city argued that developing the land would create jobs and increase tax revenue, which to the eyes of the city would be a public use. The case made it all the way up to the Supreme Court, where in a 5-4 decision, the court ruled in favor of the city.
0: It's just wild. <laughs> so private property was taken for private development and was then intended to offer a profit once sold, and the court still ruled in favor of the city.
2: The court held that the city was not taking the land simply to benefit a certain group of private individuals, but was following an economic development plan. The majority argued that these types of justifications for land taking should be given deference. The taking here qualified as public use, despite the fact that the land was not going to be used by the public. The Fifth Amendment did not require literal public use, the majority said, but a much broader and more natural interpretation of public use as public purpose.
1: And the majority of state and federal courts follow the broader definition of public use, but states can narrow the definition as they see fit. Uh, That broader definition provided by the Supreme Court, that's the ceiling. It's not the floor. Uh, The public outcry in response to Kilo was really strong. And I think it's something like 45 states now have statutorily limited what can be considered public use. I mean,
0: I would hope so. There's a case that came much later that honestly made it almost impossible for the landowner to win a case of compensation for a taking, um, you know, and cases built on that case. It's just layer on layer of complications that have basically made compensation cases for takings
1: unwinnable for the plaintiff. Yeah. And if we remember the clause just before the takings clause and Fifth Amendment, you know, no person can be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. We can make exceptions if the taking is for the public good. Okay, fine. If it's the only place for the highway, so we need to buy our lands, okay, you know, public needs must, but to buy it and sell it for a profit to a private company, that was just a step too far for most people. I mean, I'd have to
0: consider myself in that group. I mean, I know that they didn't end up making a profit off of the sale, but I mean, it just seems like it's not fair.
2: It isn't. In fact, after they took a Miss Kilo and some of the surrounding area's property, the development plan fell through. To this day, that property is still just an abandoned lot.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's, see, that's another layer. <laughs> so we've already gotten through two of the big three questions. If the government takes your property for public use, they must give just compensation. So what is just? Like, how do we know it's fair?
2: So- this is one of those subjective questions courts must answer. Generally, the government must pay the market value of seized property, but there are many exceptions.
1: The issue we run into here is that even if the seizure of property by the government can qualify as a taking, it may not be compensable. Legitimate uses for state police power, for example, they don't require compensation to the property owner, and neither do laws that aim to prevent nuisances or interference with certain property rights. So
0: generally, we're looking at the fair market value of the property as being just or fair but there are still certain governmental actions that may amount to a taking that the landowner just won't be compensated for. Is that right?
2: Yes, Um, like I said in the beginning, there are all kinds of nuances in this space, but that's the basic premise of eminent domain procedures.
0: Okay, so as ever, how do we tie this back to smart cities?
2: Well, smart cities require thousands, if not millions of data collecting sensors to be placed strategically throughout the city. And again, Unlike the Jetsons, smart city planners are operating within an already existing infrastructure framework and must use buildings or utilities that are already in place. Some of these sensors may need to be placed on private property in order to be put to their best use.
0: Well, I can't imagine that sensors are all that big. I mean, how would putting something so small in a building amount to a taking when we've seen how difficult it is for landowners to win these types of cases?
2: So, one of the few types of takings that lies firmly on the side of the landowners is permanent physical intrusion. In the case of Loretto v. Teleprompter Manhattan, the city of New York wanted to put a cable box and wires on the plaintiff's property. Loretto argued that this was a taking, and the Supreme Court agreed with her. It held that any permanent physical intrusion on a landowner's property, regardless of how minimal, constitutes a take and would require compensation. Funnily enough, in this case, the addition of the cable box actually increased the value of her property. Even still, though, the permanent physical intrusion was a taking. Though, since there was no decrease in value, she only received nominal damages of $1. This is probably the closest case to what a landowner may claim if a city wants to place permanent sensors on his property. Essentially, if the utility is placed on an individual's property for an indefinite period of time, the state or the common carrier will have to pay for it.
1: Now, by the end of 2020, uh, pandemic permitting, American Electric Power alone plans on laying out over 4,000 miles of fiber optic cables. Uh, That kind of infrastructure would involve the crossing of a significant amount of private property. This would require numerous small payments to a large group if eminent domain is implemented. Well, what happened if the sensor fails
0: or someone has to come out and fix it? Who, who pays for
1: that?
2: Well, first, what the government is granted for this permanent physical intrusion is called an easement. It's a type of property right that someone can acquire in real property that belongs to another. They typically allow for the holder to use certain portion of the property for a well-defined purpose, like trying to reach a different property or to lay an underground cable. So these easements for physical intrusions will have to factor in the cost of maintenance by the government or the private property they procure, for example, to place the cable or to repair the cables when damaged. Easement cost is a particular concern for fiber optics because the cables are rather fragile and if damage is a need to immediately repair them, which could potentially frequently interrupt the use of the landowner's property where the wires are buried.
0: I think we sort of touched on this in a previous episode when we discussed 5G technology.
1: Yeah, we did. Uh, 5G is supposed to improve latency and increase efficiency for cell service, but it operates on a shorter wavelength than 4G or LTE does. That means more sensors are going to be needed, uh, more nodes that function like mini cell towers everywhere. In the next few years, the number of these nodes in the US is estimated to rise from 86,000 to 800,000. Wow, I mean, that
0: is an incredible increase. I have to imagine there's been some kind of pushback on
2: this. For sure. The imminent domain procedure can certainly be used as a political tool. This is especially true for those who oppose the development of smart city technology. Using fiber optics as an example, there are so many groups in opposition to its implementation that 25 states have enacted legislation prohibiting municipal broadband.
1: And as Ott mentioned in a previous Smart Cities episode, there are people who oppose technology like 5G for health concerns. Uh, That's even though various organizations, like say the uh, American Cancer Society, have numerous studies showing that 5G nodes pose no health risk. But, you know, because we're humans, that has done very little to sway public opposition. So I have thoughts on this.
0: (laughs) I mean, yes. So is there a way for us then to add this technology without ending up in some sort of political quagmire?
2: The trouble, like we mentioned earlier, is that smart cities are being built over and under pre-existing infrastructure. And a lot of that infrastructure is already on private land and is only allowed to be there because of easements. When an easement is created, it has a particular stated purpose in mind. If the city wants to slightly modify currently existing infrastructure to serve smarter, newly developed services like utility poles for 5G nodes, power lines for fiber optic networks, road easement for self-driving public transport, or obsolete road easements for green spaces, the government may be required to pay for a whole new easement. Some states will allow for utility easements to go slightly beyond their original use, but others do not.
1: One of the more long-term goals of smart cities is that with improvements in public transportation and the eventual implementation of autonomous vehicles, the land use for traditional roadways could be reduced and used to make green space, uh, walking trails, other types of public spaces. But we have to remember easements are not blank checks to use land under the easement however the government wants. What do you mean? Okay, there's this 2014 case called Brandt Trust v. United States. That was where the U.S. Forest Service wanted to use an old railroad easement to make a walking trail, since there hadn't been a railroad there for years. Uh, The government had been doing this since the 1960s, and this practice established over 15,000 miles of walking trails out of old railways. Okay, so think about it. There was a path cut into the land through the trees, you know, originally for a railroad, but trains aren't using it anymore. There's this pre-cut path that's perfect for a trail, right? But because it was an easement, that means the government didn't own the actual land. Somebody else did. Plus, the government didn't even own the easement. That belonged to the railroad. So the landowner argued that just because the railroad ceased to use the easement, that didn't mean that the government now got it. The government didn't have a reversionary interest. And the Supreme Court agreed. It ruled for the landowner and abolished the easement. Once the easement was extinguished, the land returned to the landowner and the government had no right to put a U.S. Forest Service trail there.
2: Well, that particular case dealt with railroads. It parallels the situation with old road easements. If self-driving cars become the dominant force in the road and their efficiency allows for fewer traffic lanes, it could be that under this precedent, landowners will get their easements back rather than the state getting them to use for smart mobility or smart infrastructure. This would require the state to either purchase new easements or use eminent domain to forcibly purchase new easements.
0: Actually, the comment about self-driving cars reminds me, I was reading the other day about the increased use of drones, which are obviously unmanned. There's sort of a controversy though surrounding their use, right? And smart cities could absolutely take advantage of drone technology.
2: Yeah, there are a lot of ways in which drones could be of great benefit to smart cities, like they can monitor traffic, help law officials observe and manage crowds, and coordinate with smart public transit. In fact, um, for a timely example, in reaction to COVID-19, a company named Dragonfly has begun working on developing drones that can fly through crowds and scan for individuals exhibiting symptoms of the coronavirus.
1: China and Spain started repurposing agricultural drones that were originally designed to spray pesticide to instead disinfect large public areas. If we ever get out of the COVID-19 pandemic, this technology could be adapted to recognize other diseases and be used in the event of future outbreaks to make smart cities healthier places to live. But?
2: But drones encounter problems from the common law crime and tort of trespass.
0: Yeah, I knew there had to be something. So remind me what has to happen for there to be a trespass.
2: Trespass occurs when someone or their property knowingly enters the property of another. While most of the drones that smart cities will take advantage of are aerial drones, trespass can still occur when these drones enter an individual's airspace. There's an old doctrine called ad colum that generally states that your property interest extends, but the invention of airplanes really killed this doctrine. We see this in a case called United States v. Cosby, where the landowner's ownership of his airspace was effectively limited to what the FAA defines as navigable to make room for planes.
1: Drones can only legally fly up to 400 feet in the air, but the amount of airspace that a landowner owns could drastically cut into that available airspace or even eliminate it. The specifications of this are pretty fact-dependent and localized, so it'd be too complicated to really dig into here. And this feels like one of those, but the law couldn't have possibly
0: have accounted for this technological marvel situations. It is a bit.
2: In fact, the Uniform Law Commission has proposed creating a new tort called aerial trespass to account for it. Aerial trespass would occur when a person intentionally and without the landowner's consent flies or drone over that landowner's property and causes substantial interference with the use and enjoyment of the property. Then courts would look at all the facts for the case or in is the totality of the circumstances.
0: We don't really see new categories of torts being created for specific technological advancements very often, do we?
2: No, and I don't really think we have a need for a new tort here because we already have trespass. And traditional trespass claims don't require there to have been substantial interference for a claim to proceed. So it'd be easier for landowners to use. So where do we stand with drones then? The FAA has left this up to the states to decide how they want to handle drones. As the agency that sets the federal definition of navigable airspace, this seems a bit like punting. But it does allow for the benefit of letting states act as laboratories of democracy on the issue states could, if they so wish, completely ignore centuries of trespass precedent dating back to as far as Henry III and redefine this ancient tort to provide a different standard for certain parts of what was once just considered part of someone's property. Anarchy.
1: Dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. (laughs) So I'm assuming there must have been foreseeable problems with this. Yeah, there are two practical concerns with this approach. First, Assuming states adopt something similar to the ULC's aerial trespass proposal with a clause for substantial interference, uh, there could be mass litigation under what would once have been simply seen as just trespass. Uh, Totality of circumstances tests are really good at being really flexible, but really horrible when it comes to consistency. It could even be worsened by state changes to the ULC proposal, so we could see a wide range of varying state drone laws. For companies creating this technology, that would be a huge burden to conform to each state's laws, so they would likely follow the most restrictive law, which could then stifle innovation. Second, even though there are those that argue that the ad colon doctrine that was curtailed by Cosby was hyperbole anyway, you know, up to heaven, down to hell, Uh, that case itself, it created a property right in non-navigable airspace above a person's property. States have the ability to create more restrictive regulations than that allowed by the FAA, contributing to even further the potential variations in case law across state lines. Yeah, of course. Of course. (laughs) All right, Andrew, time to put you on the spot
0: what would you suggest as a way to solve these problems since you're our resident expert, as it were?
2: Fix it, Andrew. In an ideal world, states would choose to acknowledge the ancient notion of airspace above someone's property belonging to the landowner, despite the ruling in Cosby. And they'll purchase the easements to form a kind of drone highway in the sky. These highways would allow for drones to fly over designated properties and pre-approved routes, which would prioritize flight over areas not zoned for residential use, or zoned for lower maximum building heights. Since it would be property in the air, which is in most cases unusable, the cost of the easement will be relatively inexpensive since the real estate in question has no other best alternative use.
0: So how do you keep these drones in this highway in the sky? I know they're unmanned, but aren't they often
1: operated remotely by a human? Well, if drone companies rely on AI technology, it may be really easy to do this. Uh, if city drones are increasingly automated, then they can be pre-programmed to only fly outside the highway if necessary, so like to avoid a collision. Now, this doesn't mean they perfectly solve the problem with an inability to chart routes as the crew flies, but since there are no terrestrial obstacles, routes can still be constructed diagonally across properties. So this drone highway, would it be considered
0: like a permanent intrusion that could amount to a compensable taking?
2: In my opinion, yes, which is why I say states should just go ahead and purchase an easement before the intrusion becomes a case for taking clause scholars to debate for years. Okay,
0: so that's uh, quite a bit for us to sort of chew through, so let me see if I can sum it all up. If a government or common carrier seizes a property for public use or renders it useless for the owner's intended purpose through regulation— then the landowners should receive the fair market value of the property seized. Of course, public use could mean that the property will be used by the public, like a public park, or that the seizure will benefit the public welfare, like stopping the erosion of a beach. So smart cities will almost inevitably run into these problems with the takings clause because of the number of sensors required to connect technologies throughout a city, which will often have been placed on private property. Taking, quote-unquote, this space for fair compensation would give the local government an easement to use these properties, but it may be limited to a particular use, um, which can make it difficult for the city to shift its use of the space. And as is often the case, we will continue to grapple with a reactionary legal system as technology advances, like in the case of drone usage. Does that about cover it?
2: (laughs) I think you got it.
0: Well, that's great because there are so many facets of this and we talked about the nuances that sort of fall under this general takings clause um, that it, I can't imagine that someone interacting with this for the first time is probably a little overwhelmed. So thank you guys for trucking through it with us. Um, I did want to ask if you had any sort of ideas of what this is going to look like in the future for Smart Cities. So maybe if you guys had any comments or um, thoughts about that, that'd be great for us to hear.
1: Taking it back to kind of um, personally where I see it going, instead of like these large scale takings, that we might see things much more like Loretto because these cities are going to be putting tons of sensors out there. We're looking at much more small scale takings. But we have to remember going back to our previous podcasts, these sensors might not be government owned or run, they might be contracted through a company. So that's, you know, it's something we have to think about. When does this, you know, does the private public like line happen if the private companies are going and putting things on your property or taking your land? Does that complicate things? Does that, you know, does that, is that something that was going to alter the analysis? Uh, It's just something to
2: think about. Um, They might also be able to avoid some of the taking issues altogether by doing um, what they're doing here in California, where um, to pass the building code a new home is required to put solar panels on their roofs, normally requiring something that that could be seen as a permanent physical intrusion, but here it's required in order to get house approval, which if done for small things like that could potentially bypass the taking requirement.
1: That goes again to what we've been talking about this whole time, the public and the private. Those solar panels, might not be property of the homeowner, they might be leased out through a, from a company, so that's then forcing a private landowner to put a private property onto his real property. But it's all regulated by the state
2: that would still um, be a take, though, because if you <laughs> treat as a common carrier government enforced to be on the property, doesn't matter who the government's putting it on there.
0: See, it and that's really messy, exactly. It, it just sort of tangles up on itself all over again Mm -hmm. and you think you sort of pull one
1: thread it actually you're retying the knot so maybe that shows that like the tech changes are not going to alter the takings clause analysis that these are just new things but it's you know uh it doesn't actually change anything like the form of the government interference doesn't matter
2: No, we've been like ever since the very first city, like people have been adding new forms of infrastructure to improve cities. And while you've had some legal changes, a lot of the changes we have now aren't really that different than the changes we had in like the City Beautiful movement that required a lot of these early takings and zoning cases.
0: Well, per the usual, our discussion has given us a lot of food for thought as we try to sort of balance the traditional view of property rights with the need for the intrusion of those rights, really, to create smarter communities. Andrew and Alex, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your thoughts. Thanks
1: for
2: having. You're around. very
0: welcome.
1: This is so much more fun than Virginia Civil Procedure. <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as a tear rolls down your cheek. <laughs> Just uh, miserating a little bit. <laughs>
0: But I, yeah, I also want to send out a huge thank you to everyone listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Exhibit AI, where you can hear more about the intersection of law and emerging technologies. For more from CLCT, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and our website, all linked in the description of this episode. And finally, this podcast is made possible by a generous grant of the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, which is funded by Cisco Systems Incorporated. We truly appreciate their continued support of our independent research efforts. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you all stay healthy and safe. Until next time, this is Exhibit AI, signing off.